were not with us last time, um, we started off our series on meltdowns with Moses, with the life of Moses. Let me get my sleeves rolled up here. You know it's going to be work tonight, right? You're going to roll up the sleeves. So we, we started with Moses and we kind of began to, to, to talk about what it means when we have a meltdown. Whether we talk about an adult or a child, um, a meltdown is that intense response to an overwhelming situation. And, and, you know, there's extreme emotions. There's anger, there's sadness, there's frustration during a meltdown because it creates a high level of anxiety. And we mentioned that when a meltdown does happen, there's this mentality of either of, of a flight, a fight, or freeze. And, and sometimes um, you can't escape, so you either uh, fight or you freeze. But meltdowns don't always look the same for everybody. Um, for some people, it's the center stage, like we referenced in a dramatic production called Their Life. <laughs> for others, it might be in a dark room, undisturbed, in a corner. But the meltdown doesn't mean you're somehow less spiritual. It doesn't mean you're somehow weak or, or uh, not a good believer. It just simply means that you're a human. And um, more often than not, when we talk about being overloaded, that idea of overloaded means that a person is ripe for a meltdown. Children can be overloaded with so many different things. Adults can be overloaded. You can be overloaded right now just about thinking about Monday coming, right? I mean, just all the things that are happening. But the point of the series is not to list the different stimuli that can lead to a meltdowns because we could be here for a long, long time. The point is to look at how God responded when some well-known characters that we know and love had meltdowns and they went into meltdown modes. It just shows us that they are normal, just like us. How does God pick them up? Um, how does he guide them out of a pit of despair? How, how does he teach them? What does he want them to learn? All these types of questions we'll be addressing as we've gone through this series or going through. Now, last week we talked about Moses. And if you remember, uh, Moses had this meltdown because when he realized that God wanted him to go to Egypt to free the, what would become the nation of Israel, to bring them back out of slavery, to bring them into a desert place so God could create a people out of them, he was thoroughly shocked, he was overwhelmed, he was beside himself, so much so that he just was pleading with God by the end of our conversation in Exodus 3 and 4 of, Lord, please just send someone else. Send someone else. I don't want to do this. And for Moses, um, God dealt gently with him. And we saw kind of like a process of a meltdown and how it kind of happens, at least in the life of Moses. But through the whole process, God was constantly reminding Moses, I am always with you. I am with you. And so in whatever meltdown we find ourselves to, that's a promise for us to remember that God is always with us. Now, the second character we're going to look at in this series is a man by the name of Elijah. And as with Moses, so with Elijah, the context, the backstory here is crucial to understanding. So we're going to be looking at 1 Kings uh, chapter 19 um, as we get into Elijah. But we need to go back a few chapters earlier to 1 Kings chapter 11. You don't have to turn there, um, but let me explain because I hope you'll give me some latitude with explaining some larger context because I think it'll really help us understand what's going on in this chapter. 
Now you go back to 1 Kings chapter 11, and 1 Kings chapter 11 is a sad, sad story. Because it's in 1 Kings chapter 11 where the kingdom of Israel is split into two kingdoms. It's split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. We often call it the ten tribes of the north and the two tribes of the south. So it's split. Before that time, there were three kings, three monarchs. We know them as Saul, David, and Solomon. And so after Solomon, he comes to the throne. He starts his reign out really well. He does good. And if you've read your Bible, you know the story. He prays and asks the Lord for wisdom. God gives him wisdom. He builds a great temple. He's doing all these things great. And then he kind of has a midlife crisis a little bit here. Um, and he starts following after the wrong gods. In fact, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 33 says, For Solomon has abandoned me and worshiped Astaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, Molech, the god of the Ammonites. And for this reason, the text tells us, as you, as you keep reading, God decided the kingdom is going to be split in two. At the death of Solomon, his son, Rehoboam, takes over. And during the first few days of Rehoboam's coronation, some of the leaders come to Rehoboam and they are concerned because they're concerned about how it was under his father, Solomon, and they don't want it to be the same as Solomon. And so 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 4 says, Your father was a hard master. Speaking of Solomon, lighten the harsh labor demands and heavy taxes. Yes, you read it right, heavy taxes that your father imposed on us. Then we will be your loyal subjects. So Rehoboam has a decision to make, and he says, give me some time. I want three days, and I'm going to go cons consult my counselors and see what they say. And so Rehoboam consults the men who were under Solomon, who were, and they said, please, lighten the load. Rehoboam goes and he consults some of his younger guys, his friends, that grew up with him. And they said, no, Rehoboam, you should, you should, you should still tax them. You should do it even more. They were probably thinking that they might get an easy, easy life. And so when Rehoboam, when the time comes and Rehoboam appears back before the people three days later, he renders his decision. He says, you thought that my father was going to be hard? I'm paraphrasing. It's going to be even worse. You think that my father's finger was difficult? I'm going to put my foot on you, he says. And as a result, immediately, it seems at that very moment, as God said, the kingdom gets split, split into two tribes. The ten tribes of the north, led by a man named Jeroboam. And Jeroboam was just a military leader for Solomon during his reign. The people liked him. And then you have Rehoboam, who's leading the other two tribes. And as time progressed, and as you read through the rest of Scripture until the exiles, it's this back and forth thing between the northern kingdoms and the southern kingdoms. As time progressed, the northern kingdom, these ten tribes, wanted their own capital city. So they decided, let's set up a capital city in Shechem. That's where we want our capital city. Because the other two tribes, they retain the rights to Jerusalem. The original two-state solution, I guess we might say, here in the text, right? So they said, we want Shechem. Jeroboam, the leader, he didn't want his people going back to the two tribes. He wanted them to stay in unity with the ten tribes. So he decides, I need to do something 
some kind of religious system I need to set up. I don't want them going back to Jerusalem to worship. I want them to stay here. And so he decides, let me set up two worship centers, one in Bethel on the lower part of Israel and one in Dan on the northern part. And sadly enough, you know what Jeroboam does? In those two places, he sets up two golden calves for the nation of Israel to worship. Sounds reminiscent of something else, right? Aaron, Moses, the Ten Commandments on the mountain. You probably remember the story. And so it even gets, it gets so detailed that Jeroboam even decides, I'm going to set up similar ceremonies, similar festivals, similar events that the nation of Israel would celebrate in Jerusalem. We're going to celebrate them here because Jeroboam did not want the people to worship. So what this does is that the northern kingdom begins to go just in this downward spiral into idolatry, into disobedience. And when you look at all the 20 kings, I think, of the northern kingdom, they're all evil kings. They're all bad kings. Now, the southern kingdom still has some problems. The southern kingdom still has some issues. They don't have all bad kings. Some of their kings are good. Some of their kings are bad. Some of their kings are like Solomon started out well and, and turned out bad. But it's during this time that God raises up this office of the prophet, of which Elijah is one. So it's during this time, and so the purpose of a prophet was that he was to preach to the people and say, return back to me. Stop following the idolatry of the day. Stop following and worshiping the gods of the other nations. Come back to me. And usually a prophet had an audience, had a person that he was going to, or a nation that he was supposed to speak to. Uh, so you were either going to speak to the northern tribes, or God would give you Speak to the southern tribes. That was usually their audience. They usually had one of two audiences. And so for Elijah, his task was to speak to the northern kingdom. And the king ruling at this time was none other than King Ahab and his wife, the infamous Jezebel. So the first time Elijah approaches Ahab, he has a specific message. First Kings chapter 17, verse 1, it says this. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be not, um, there not shall be dew nor rain these years except at my word. So Elijah relays the message to Ahab, there's going to be no rain. Pretty simple, right? So for three years there's no rain. They meet again, Ahab and Elijah. And Ahab has become not a fan of Elijah. In 1 Kings 18, verse 16, it says, And Ahab went to meet Elijah. And then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commands of the Lord and have followed the Baals, or the false gods. And so as this event starts to unfold, and if you read the 21 days of prayer. You probably read the prayer of Elijah here as the fire comes down on the mountain. So what Elijah wants to do is he wants to get the whole nation of Israel to see the one true God, to demonstrate his power so that they will come back to him. That's his point. And so as you continue looking here in the text, it says in verse 19 of chapter 18, now therefore send and gather all of Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Astra who eat at Jezebel's 
table. So 450. Because he wants to address them. He wants to talk to them. It says, verse 20, So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him, Not a word. They said nothing. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now that phrase is going to come up later on when Elijah starts talking to God. Verse 23, therefore, let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it into pieces, lay it on wood, put a fire under it, and I will prepare another bull and lay it on the wood, but no fire under it. Then you will call on the name of your gods and I will call on the name of the Lord my God and God who answers by fire, he is God. So the contest is set, right? The prophets of Baal and Elijah and all the rest of the people of Israel watching, seeing what's happening. Elijah being a nice prophet, right? He lets the prophets of Baal go first, right? And so he watches as they do their dance, cut themselves, as the text says. Elijah being a nice prophet, (laughs) starts saying things, starts agitating, starts taunting them. I guess he was a good trash talker. Um, You know, like in sports, if you're a good trash talker, I was never a trash talker, I just played better. That's how I worked. Uh, But he says, your God's asleep. Maybe he's taking a break. You know, maybe you can't hear him speak louder. It's an all-day affair, right? Until late afternoon, around 3 o'clock, Elijah says, okay, it's my turn. And then then you know the the famous story here. Um, In response to a short prayer from Elijah, God unmistakably demonstrates that he is the one true God. And the fire comes down, laps up all of the water, completely consumes the fire, and every, excuse me, completely consumes the sacrifice, the wood, the water, everything around it. And then as a result, Elijah's led to kill all the false prophets. And at the end of the story, he goes back to Mount Carmel. He gets up on the mountain alone. He prays. Guess what? God sends the rain again. <clears throat> this is kind of Elijah's, Elijah's ministry. His ministry was one of fire, of one of wind, of one of earthquake. His ministry was one of big things that God was doing, like visible, unmistakable things that God was doing. So Ahab was there, and Ahab goes home. And Ahab goes home as you get to chapter 19, and, of course, he's going to find his wife. And he tells his wife, let me just tell you what happened today on Mount Carmel. And he tells him the story. And look at chapter 19, verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as one of, the, as one of them by tomorrow about this time. Wow, that's, that's some fighting words. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life. Now, what does Elijah do in response to the threats? That's what we want to look at from the life of Jezebel. He runs away is what he does. 
the meltdown has begun with a flick of a switch and how quickly Elijah has forgotten the power and the ability, at least as it were, of the one true God that was demonstrated just probably hours ago for all of Israel to see. All the, frost, all the false prophets, <laughs> I can't say it. All the false prophets have been killed. Seeing frosty prophets. All the false prophets <clears throat> have been killed. Jezebel doesn't have an army any longer. Yet Elijah still goes into a meltdown. The book of James, pastor was saying that earlier, chapter 5, verse 17, says about Elijah, he was a man subject to the same passions we are. He was just like us. He was easily moved from a mountaintop experience to a meltdown. And so as soon as he hears that Jezebel puts a contract out on his life, he leaves town. <clears throat> but I want you to look closer at verse 2 and verse 3 because I want you to see why he was having a meltdown. We naturally assume fear, don't we? We naturally assume fear as the reason why. But if you look into the text here of verse 3, there's a technical note. <clears throat> and let me add this technical note to help you better understand what's going on in the text. And, and um, so it's going to get technical for just one second here, actually for a few minutes. In verse 3, if you have a King James or New King James Bible, you'll see the verse begin with the phrase, and he saw. Okay? If you have an ESV, an NIV, an NLT, a New American Standard, I believe, they use the phrase, and he was afraid. Well, that's a, kind of a big difference. And he saw or and he was afraid. So which translation is best? Why are they different, right? Sometimes differences in a text are minor. Translators choose a different synonym. <clears throat> but there's a little bit more at stake here. Because the Hebrew word, which is not actually able to pronounce, it's a consonantal phrase, used to translate this phrase in question is ambiguous. Which means that when it's vocalized, you can vocalize it in two different ways. You can vo vocalize it as to see or to fear. But it's ambiguous. Neutral, we'd say. So how do we translate it? Do we say, he was afraid? Because then that's going to flavor the rest of our looking at Elijah. Or, and he saw. Or, and, or he sees. So, if you want some more technical details, know that the ESV, the NLT, the New American Standard, the NIV, and others chose to use the phrase, and he was afraid, because that use is found in some of the older manuscripts. And typically, older readings... Sometimes are better ones, not always the case. But the King James, the new King James choice of Annie Saul is not an older rendition. It's a much earlier one. When the phrase is ambiguous, you have to go to the context. You have to zero in on the context. So the question becomes, was Elijah simply afraid of Jezebel and feared for his life and left town in a hurry? Or when Elijah saw that God's power had no effect on Jezebel, he decided, or he saw that, and he decides to call it quits and leave town. Two different ways, right? Two different ways of looking at it. And remember, when translations are different, the deciding factor is always going to be the context. Always going to be the context. It's always going to be the story, the backstory. I believe the phrase to see better aligns with the context and better demonstrates that Elijah, the reason why he has his meltdown, he's not afraid of Jezebel. I don't think he's afraid of Jezebel at all. He's frustrated. 
that God's demonstration of power on Mount Carmel didn't have any effect on her. It had effect on everybody else. But when the word got back from Ahab to Jezebel, nothing. Surely, surely she would have changed her mind. Surely. I mean, look what happened. All the people of Israel said, yes, we'll follow you. And they got rid of all the false prophets on the top of the mountain. Ahab's like, oh. And then he goes home and tells Jezebel what happened. Surely it's going to have some effect on Jezebel. It says that when he saw that, he leaves town. And look what he does as you continue looking at the, at the text. When Elijah leaves town, he just doesn't leave town. He arose and ran, verse 3, uh, for his life, and he went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. That went down really fast, didn't it? 150 miles away, by the way, is Beersheba from Jezreel. So this is no simple, like, let me get to the next town and get in hiding because Jezebel's going to take my life. And when he gets to Jezreel, he leaves a servant in town. It's a way of saying he's done with a prophetic ministry, and he's going to go out to the wilderness and die. Sat down under a juniper tree, asked God to take his life. If anyone was going to take the life of Elijah, it would be God. It's not going to be Jezebel. I think it's safe to say that, you know, he's in total meltdown here. You know, let's remember Moses. Jonah prayed the same kind of prayer. Job and Jeremiah wished they had never been born. Even David felt the adversities of life were much, for, they were much, they were too much for him. And what's interesting about Elijah's prayer is that even though he prayed for death, he actually never dies. Because if you remember the rest of Elijah's story, right, he's later taken to heaven in a chariot of fire. So God says, nope, <laughs> you're not even going to die. So how does God respond to Elijah's meltdown? Well, I'll put the outline up there for you to follow. Pretty simple. The first thing God does is God refreshes Elijah. Look at what verse 5 says. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, or Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. Now, the first thing that happens is, is, is a very, very practical thing. You know, God allows Elijah time to be refreshed. Physical exhaustion of his journey, 100, 150 miles, not to mention the previous spiritual high. He's hoping that everybody in Israel is going to repent. All of them do except for one. He was utterly exhausted physically, emotionally. God knew he needed sleep and he needed food. I mean, these are two things, sleeping and eating, that have been designed by God to refresh you. Sometimes you just need to sleep and you just need to eat. We do more of that like cats, right? That's all they do. It's sleep and eat. You know, and other things. But we're not meant to go with food or sleep for long periods of time. We're never created that way. That's not the way God designed us. Even Jesus himself in his human right form needed sleep and, and, and he needed food. Exhaustion can make you extremely emotional. Can lead you to think thoughts that are not rational. Fatigue can. 
We might say it seems like he was burnt out with his ministry. But again, sleep and eating here, rest, are physical aspects of being refreshed. But God also understands Elijah needs spiritual refreshment. Okay, Not only physical, but you can't get spiritually refreshed until you're first awake from the physical refreshment. So Elijah's given a new directive here. Travel to Mount Sinai, to Mount Horeb. Likely to the very place where Moses had been on the mountaintop when he received the Ten Commandments. So now the story gets interesting. 40 days to get there. So he's already traveled 150 miles, however long that takes. And now he's got to travel 40 days and 40 nights. Sounds like the flood, right? 40 day, raining for 40 days and 40 nights to get there. And he's got to go through some difficult terrain. His journey uh, necessitated that he crossed the part of the Sinai Peninsula that the, the, um, the locals called the Desert of the Lost. It's a seemingly endless expanse of powdery sand into which your feet sink so that every step requires considerable effort. And it's devoid of all landmarks. So the sun above and the stars at night are the only thing that can guide the traveler, not to mention the blistering 120 degrees or more heat. He's got to travel through all of this to get there. If he was just scared of Jezebel, he would have found a more comfortable place to hide. One thing is sure, he had a lot of alone time to think. 40 days, right? 40 nights. And we might have expected Elijah to be refreshed, right, from his outlook. And the joy of his salvation to be restored, right, when he came to the top of Mount Horeb here, to Mount Sinai. But sadly, 40 days later, the prophet is still, he's still in the dumps. The 40 days and 40 nights he probably was rehearsing that angry speech that he would give to God the next time he had a chance to talk with him, right? Telling him of all the ways that he let him down. One author says here of Elijah, on Mount Horeb we find the greatest of saints reduced to the blackest of moods. And, 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 and I would agree. But God refreshes Elijah, gives him physical energy first so that he can get to this next part of where he'll have a confrontation with God. And so God listens to Elijah. Now look what happens here. So he gets to Mount Horeb, verse 9. And he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, Elijah said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, tore down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Now look back at chapter 18, verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left as a prophet of the Lord. So you see the connection here? This is Elijah's conundrum. He'd been very zealous for the Lord, God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. God just listens to what Elijah says. There's no rebuke here. But let's take apart this verse because I want you to see it closer. Look at verse 10. It says, I have been very zealous for the Lord of hosts. I mean, who had been more zealous than Elijah? Right? I mean, truly, who had been more zealous than Elijah? He shut up the rain through prayer, pronounced judgment on Ahab's kingdom, raised a widow from the dead, taunted the prophets of Baal, killed them. 
And so many other things we can add to this. But Elijah was no longer zealous as he had once been. What has Elijah done for God lately? Because Jezebel doesn't repent, he decides to run, on the other side of, run to the other side of Israel and to quit his ministry. He claims to be zealous, right, for the Lord. But it sounds like he's just being self-righteous. He's so full of himself. He has this exaggerated view of his own personal godliness. He wants special treatment from God, apparently thinking that God owes him something for his service. And friends, that's a dangerous road to go down. But nonetheless, God just listens. He doesn't rebuke. He's just there listening to what Elijah is saying. He says, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. Next phrase, torn down your altars, killed the prophets with a sword. All these things had been true in the past, but they were no longer true now because the contest on Mount Carmel demonstrates there's a change. Elijah has selective memory here. <laughs> it's full of self-pity. He's telling himself that things are, are worse, are so much worse than they really were. Feeling sorry for himself to the extent that he exaggerated the claim, they are trying to kill me. Well, who's they? It's just one person. It's always the they's, right? They're all against me. It's usually just one person. <laughs> and he turns the they into a she. And by turning the queen into an entire kingdom, the prophet was magnifying his troubles, kind of nursing that sense of self-pity. Again, for some reason, it seems that Jezebel's refusal to repent from Elijah's ministry, his preaching, that really has just sent him down to a meltdown. Now, maybe we should look at that, though, in a, in a more positive light and not in a, in, a, in a negative light. Do we ever get frustrated or upset with God because a specific person that we are praying for has not accepted Christ? You know, from that perspective, right, our concerns and frustrations are looked at in terms of righteous zeal, right? It's a good thing. Or do we really care that much about the integrity of the church to get upset about it? You know, does its doctrinal indifference in some places and the idolatrous pragmatism in other places, does it ever get us upset to where we just get so frustrated and we go alone and God and say, Lord, why haven't you done anything? Sounds like some of the Psalms, doesn't it? When David is going and talking to God, he's upset. Why, God, don't you do something? Why don't you give the enemy what's the, why, the wicked? Why don't you? How come don't you? Sounds exactly like David. So let's not throw Elijah out completely with his frustration here, with his meltdown. But the phrase here, I alone am left, it sounds like a dramatic line for a movie, right? I alone am left. I alone. I mean, he says that, like I said, back in chapter 18, verse 22, I alone am left. <laughs> it's like the world against me, is what Elijah's saying. No one understands me. No one has ever gone through what I've been through. Noah can help me. But I wonder if Elijah actually considered where his speech was taking place, right? As you've probably figured, Elijah was on the Mount Sinai. And according to tradition, the very place that Moses would have been, I actually think there is some monastery up there, up on that mountain. I mean, think about Moses. Think about the story of Moses, right? Moses ascended to the mountain to get the law from God. 
as he was there, the people of Israel rebelled. They crafted a false god to worship led by his own brother. And the people were ready to abandon God's covenant with him before God even set it up in the first place. I mean, come on, Elijah, don't you know where you're at? Don't you know, Elijah, why I brought you to this place? Moses experienced the same kind of meltdown. <laughs> Moses throws the Ten Commandments down the mountain, right? He gets really upset with what's happening. Sometimes, sometimes the Spirit of God will lead us to a specific place when we're in a meltdown mode. And maybe, I don't know, maybe it's a quiet room in your house. Um, maybe it's a quiet place on your property, a tree stand at a park, a friend's house, you know, a familiar drive in your car, wherever it might be. Wherever you find yourself retreating to could be an important lesson that God's trying to teach you. Why are you there? Why has God led you there? For Elijah, he felt like he was alone. Moses likely felt the same feelings, right? For Elijah, he may have felt like he was the only one who was faithful to God. Moses believed that too as he came down the mountain and saw all of the nation of Israel worshiping the other false god. The place where the Spirit of God leads you so that he can teach you what he wants you to learn can be supremely significant. And Elijah is so lost in himself and so lost in the fact that God hasn't done anything, that God's trying to teach him something. And he just misses everything. Well, then God slowly, again, God doesn't say anything. God doesn't rebuke him. Listen to what happens. God restores him. Look at verse 11. Then he said, go out to Elijah and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountain and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind on the earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, a still small voice. God says, Elijah, come out of the cave and focus on me. Elijah says, no, thank you. I'll stay right where I'm at. He stays in the cave. God desires to display his full power to Elijah, right? Like he did to Moses, same place, right? Moses in his ministry, but Elijah have no part in it. He's too busy sitting in the corner of the cave with his head in his hands saying, I'm done with this. The Lord passed by the cave with wind, earthquake, and fire, right? And Elijah still didn't come out of the cave. I guess he was used to those powerful demonstrations by God. Oh, yeah, that's the God I know. Yeah, But then God whispers into the cave, and that gets his attention. And he comes out, and it seems that that's something that he hasn't experienced to God. See, God is not just a God of the spectacular at times. The work of God is experienced in a still, small voice. And again, God says, Elijah, why are you here? God wants to display his glory to Elijah. Come out of the cave. Elijah says, no, thank you. I'll stay here in my meltdown. I mean, what an opportunity that he missed of being able to be in front of God, whatever that looked like. Just like when Moses got a chance to see the, the, you know, the backside of the, the, the curtain of, of God, whatever it was he saw. With his face shown when he came down the mountain. God was ready to give that same thing to 
Elijah, but he was too busy staying in the back of the cave in his meltdown, that he missed it. He missed where he was. He missed, he missed the opportunity. Why are you here? Look what Elijah says in verse, 9, or verse uh, 14. And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, tore down your altars and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Now, wait a minute. We just read that verse, didn't we? Verse 10, it's the same verse, same thing. He essentially quotes the same thing. He says, uh, I just said this, Lord, <laughs> right? Remains unchanged. Israel's apostasy, Elijah's loneliness, it remains unchanged. And, and although from the surface, it seems like nothing has changed, something has changed because look how God responds. This is what God does. God refused to let Elijah quit his ministry. Instead, God has signed him the task of three specific tasks, of anointing three specific individuals. And these three individuals would fix, you follow me, would fix temporarily, but would fix Israel's apostasy problems. You see, God was listening when Elijah got up on that mountain and he was talking to God and saying, look, this is why, this is why I'm not afraid of Jezebel. You're the more powerful God. I get that. But nobody is listening. She won't listen. She won't listen. And God says, okay, let me show you that I'm listening. And let me show you how I'm going to fix this problem. First, in verse 15, he was the set apart Haziel, the next king of Syria. History tells us that when Haziel becomes a king, <clears throat> he, se <clears throat> he severely oppressed Israel. And his special purpose, thus, was to execute God's punishment for Israel's apostasy. So that's the first step. Second, Elijah was to designate Jehu, the son of Nishmi, the new king over Israel. And Jehu's special purpose would be to finally rid Israel of Ahab's dynasty. All that apostasy led by Ahab and Jezebel. Then third, Elijah was to set apart his own successor, <clears throat> Elisha. God took seriously Elijah's complaint. I alone am left. You're not left alone. God gave him a colleague. God gave him a man by the name of Elijah or Elisha who would encourage him, who would strengthen him, who would come alongside of him. And Elijah, or excuse me, Elisha would accompany Elijah throughout the battles ahead. And by the way, Elijah, I'll also set aside 7,000 others who will also remain faithful to God as it says so in the text. God listened. You'd think that Elijah was just afraid of his life and just wants to get, just get away from Jezebel, but no. Elijah had this righteous zeal and says, Lord, why is it not working? <laughs> on the, they saw your power. They saw your might. They saw everything on Mount Carmel. They saw it all. Yet when people go and give the secondhand information Ahab does to Jezebel, it doesn't affect her because she just didn't see the power of God. And Elijah's just so frustrated, he goes into a meltdown. Some people look at this text, <clears throat> I think wrongly. I'm sorry. And, <clears throat> and they say that Elijah was put on the shelf. He's done. God says, okay, you want to do this? You're done. I'm going to set aside Elisha now, and he's going to come and take your place. Some people think that. 
But as you go further into the story of Elisha, it's not true. In fact, Elisha was instrumental in setting up what we call the school of the prophets. And there were many, many, many more prophets who began preaching in Israel doing the very, very same thing that Elijah was doing. And so some people say he was put on the shelf. I say, you gotta read, you gotta read the rest of the story, people. You gotta read the rest of the story. One meltdown doesn't mean that God has finished with you or that you've been put on the shelf. If that were the case, as a five-year-old kid, I'd be put on the shelf, right? <laughs> or you should throw up your hands in disgust with, I quit. I mean, I, I know we're overloaded. I know we can act that way. But the reality we must take away from Elijah is that meltdowns can serve a far greater purpose than what we initially anticipated. It's in the throes of a meltdown that we can come to out with a stronger purpose, a stronger call on our life. I mean, look what happens to Elijah. He doesn't get to see death. God takes him to heaven in a chariot of fire. Tell me that's bad, <laughs> worse. No, 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 that's a better thing, a greater ministry. Sometimes it's in the throes of a meltdown when we get that stronger purpose of what God wants us to do, we come out. Sometimes in the midst of a meltdown, God can do the soul work on us. And we often come out in better shape with a renewed vision on our lives than we had going in. Elijah felt that God wasn't listening. The people weren't responding. I alone, Elijah says, am here. Nobody else is following God. We look at the world today, right? We say, man, nobody else is following God. Pastor's preaching hard every Sunday morning, saying just do the simple, simple thing of walk with God each and every day. We look around the world and we say, why? Nobody else. I mean, here's Elijah. And everybody says he was so afraid of Jezebel. I say, no, there's much more to the story than that. If you think about the book of James in the New Testament, it might be a good way to compare meltdowns to trials. James says trials are part of our growth. There's much we can learn from such trials, right? We can learn through trials. Meltdowns can be treated in the same fashion. But with a meltdown and a trial, it's response. It's the response we offer to the situation that determines the outcome. Well, how did Elijah respond? Well, how do we respond? James says that trials can be gifts, good things. And meltdowns can be looked at in those same terms too. I mean, they're surprise gifts, right? Because nobody <laughs> is planning on opening a gift if they know it's a full-scale meltdown, right? If you knew that was a full-scale meltdown, and it says do not open the box, although some people probably would because it says don't open the box. But, you know, because they'd probably be, oh, I can handle it. We need to carefully and methodically open up that gift as we see what God wants us to learn. And, and, and you know, Elijah, he had all the, all the uh, symptoms of ministry burnout. He needed time away, time alone with God so that God could do his work. But God didn't allow retirement. Elijah, you're not done. You've got work left to do. Yeah, this is a hard time. Yeah, it's a meltdown. But you're going to come out of this meltdown stronger than, than, than how you went into it. And so think about if Elijah never went into the meltdown, what may have been missed. 
He listened to Elijah's concerns. I find that interesting. He didn't rebuke Elijah. He just listened as, as, a, as a good shepherd would listen. And he reinvigorated Elijah. And so to me, we should not fear being a broken or embarrassed servant when we have such a kind and adequate father who is in the business of restoring and reusing broken people. Not in the least bit. Not in the least bit. So my question to you tonight is, as, as we've looked at Elijah, as we've seen his meltdown, his meltdown wasn't because of fear. His meltdown we would call a very righteous meltdown. One, that he was upset that God wasn't doing more things. He was, he was very righteous in his meltdown. He, he wasn't afraid. And let that be a lesson for us today as well, that there needs to be more Elijahs in our world today. More ones who will stand up and who will call evil for what it is, evil. Call wickedness for what it is, wickedness. And call out righteousness when they see righteousness. And Elijah did that. And then he goes before God and he says, Lord, it's just not working the way I wanted it to work. <laughs> and isn't that the same old story? And God says, you know what, Elijah? My plan will always be better than your plan. <laughs> it's always going to work better. But the fact of the matter is, God still listened to him. God still listened to him. And responded to his cry. That's the God that I serve. I don't think Elijah was afraid. I don't think he was fearful. I think he was just burned out. And he needed to get alone with God. Get restored. Get reinvigorated. And sometimes that's the case with us. Sometimes that meltdown is a burnout. You get so overloaded. Whether it's serving in ministry. Whether it's just life in general. Whether it's family issues. You just get so overloaded. And you just need time alone. You need to go find that quiet place that you go and get alone with God or wherever that might be. And if you don't have a quiet place like that, I suggest you find one. Uh, one where you can go and you can get alone with God.